that he wanted all to come to him. He wanted all to be a part of his kingdom. What was the issue with the the Jewish nation? Why why was it that God said, I have a chosen people, and the Gentiles were not a part of that? What, What was the main issue there? What was the discussion? Was it that God just wanted Jews and didn't like anybody else? Was that what was taking place? So what was it? Another P word, actually, because of a what? A promise. A promise. God made a promise to Abraham that by your seed all nations of the earth will be blessed. So when he was talking to the children of Israel, he was emphasizing, I want you to be set apart because you are the nationality that is going to be the line of Christ. I'm having you as a separate people, a set-apart people. God was not saying that I only want Jews to be saved under the old law or to be following after me. In fact, we see examples where this wasn't even the case. And there's some even New Testament examples we can look at, and we're actually going to look through some of those tonight as well. But God has never been a God of exclusion. He is a God of acceptance. However, He is not a God that forces you to be there. He is not a God that forces you to be a part of His kingdom. He says, here are the rules one has to follow. Here is the way that someone has to live to be a part of my people, my kingdom. If you choose not to follow that, He's not going to hinder you. He's not going to stop you from doing that. But, going into this main section here of James chapter 2, verses 1-9, through 9, He says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come also in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say to him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou here, or sit here under my footstool. Are you not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? We talked about Sunday morning in the last few minutes of class, and since we kind of had to rush through that a little bit, we'll go into more detail on what we were discussing. But what James is describing here is something that many of us have seen. And it's maybe something we've even been guilty of. If there's someone who has something that I might want, oh, I'm going to be that person's best friend. I'm going to be doing everything I can. If I love fishing, I'm going to find someone who has a pond. If I love hunting, I'm going to find someone who has a lot of property. If, I'm going, if I enjoy cars, I'm going to find someone who has a lot of cars. But what... James is talking about here is they were doing this very thing in the assembly. This is the same idea as if we were sitting here tonight and the president of the United States would pick your favorite president before we say this. Pick your favorite president. Your favorite president comes through the door. I'm sure many of us would be like finding the best possible place. Hey, come sit here by me or go sit over here. Friends, if we treat the President of the United States differently than we would any other person who comes into this assembly, we're following this. We are guilty of this. Because it's not about someone's station. Because when we all come into this assembly, when we are part of the Lord's kingdom, there is no station. There is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, but we are all what? One in Christ. One in Christ. One of us is not more important than the other. Just because we have specific roles doesn't even mean we're more important than one another. I'm no different than anybody else because I fill a pulpit every Sunday. You know what that just means? I have to work a little bit more for coming to services. A whole lot more. But that's it. 
That's the only thing that makes me different from anyone else is that I get up in a pulpit on Sunday. I'm still a Christian like anyone else. I still struggle like anyone else. But we are all one. We are not to have this idea of partiality. The word prejudice is one that we've probably heard a thousand times and probably heard even more in the past few years. But what does that word mean? If we were to break that down, what are the two words that are joined together for that word? Prejudging. Prejudging. Judging before. Before what? Before what? Before the facts, before you know the person, before you know anything. You have a set idea on this person. We see this played out in front of us, and I can tell you exactly how you do it. Find the biggest red hat that you could possibly find and go sit on a bus or a train, and I promise you, you'll see prejudice in action. I promise you'll see it. Everyone has an opinion of you as soon as you sit on the bus, as soon as you sit on that train. They've watched you for a second, and they know exactly how they feel about you. Now, you might have to change their opinion later on, but that's their first impression. That's their first impression. As Christians, how do we respond when people come in? If we see someone come in and they're dressed in ragged clothing is our first thought, oh, okay, well, I'm going to have to keep an eye on him for the rest of the night. Or is our thought the same as if the president came in? See, as Christians, we're not to have this divisive mindset and say this person is one that should be applauded and this person is one who should be put down because that's not how God views it. God has a very, for lack of a better term, a dual view of the world. There are those who are His and those who are not. That's it. That's it. Are there some characteristics that God hates more than others? Well, we see that in the book of Proverbs. There are six things the Lord hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to Him. But just because someone is proud and God hates pride doesn't make that person in any better standing with the Lord than if he was engaging in any other sin. He's still lost. Lost is lost. I can assure you there's not going to be a pleasant place in hell. It's just not going to happen. But what James is describing here is a group of people who are focusing specifically on one area. And what was that area? What was that? I think I heard it. What was it? Their wealth. Their wealth. Their physical standing. He says, if someone comes into your assembly having a gold ring, goodly apparel, and they're coming also a poor man in vile raiment, what does he say they do? They go in, they say, hey, have the best seat that we have. Have the choice seat. Here, take mine. I'll get up and so you can sit down. But he says, when someone comes in in vile raiment, you say, go, go sit over there or... You can sit here under my footstool. You see the level of importance they're holding for people? The issue that's taking place here, when someone judges another in this sense, we understand that we are to judge righteous judgment, which means we see the facts that are in front of us. We see there are violations of God's law, and we can say those things are wrong. But when we judge a person without facts or we judge a person in general saying they're less valuable than another, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. I'm saying I have the right to determine someone's value. 
And friends, that is never a right we were given. Never once was that a right we were given. It's not my place to judge someone as less valuable than another. That's never been the case. So what he is saying here is this is a divisive mindset. This is something that can divide you as a group. And remember, what was going on with these people? We're going to keep bringing this up over and over again. What was the context? What are these people going through? Anybody remember? What happened to these Christians? They were scattered abroad. Persecution had set in, and they were spread all over the world. Now, what do you have to have to survive a situation like that? A group of people you can rely on. A group of people you can stand with. James, throughout this entire section, is giving us a play-by-play on how we can keep unity. How we can keep unity, and what was the main idea? Keeping the focus on the source. Keeping the focus on the source. Remember who's in charge. Remember who the source of blessings are. Remember who is actually responsible for these things happening to us. It's not God. We talked about that in James chapter 1. So he's encouraging them not to have this mindset. He says, are you not them partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? We talked about Sunday that there's another way of describing this idea, which is that one is literally a judge with evil thoughts. It's as if you were standing in a courtroom and you have what we would call a hostile judge. You walk into the courtroom, he doesn't like your face, and he's going to be against you for the entire duration of the trial. That is the same idea. Because I'm sure we can say this, if we have a predetermined idea about somebody, it is going to take an insane amount of work for them to change that opinion. Because we have that so ingrained in that first five seconds of meeting somebody, we have it so ingrained that they literally have to present a court case to show you that they're not what you think they are. And that's the difficulty here. In America, in our legal system, what is the phrase that is used? Innocent until what? Proven guilty. We know that practically in the world, it is guilty until proven innocent. Every single time. You have to work at keeping that innocent until proven guilty. There was a... I'm, and maybe most of us are familiar with this. It's fairly, a fairly famous trial. Maybe you've heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial. The Scopes Monkey Trial. The main point of this was a teacher was trying to teach evolution in a school right here in East Tennessee. And as a result of that, they took him to court to try to sue him for this or incarcerate him. And as a result of this trial, this was really determining whether or not evolution could be taught in schools. Now you had two people that were the main spokesmen for this. And one of them was the defense attorney, Clarence Darrow. Now if you've ever done any research on Clarence Darrow, well you will find out very quickly the man was a terrible lawyer and a great publicist. He was a terrible lawyer. Because his first mindset with the trial is, I'm not trying to win the court case. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to win the war of public opinion. So what Clarence Darrow was doing was he was making sure he was talking to reporters. He was making sure he was showing off how stupid these people were for trying to claim that this was not a reality or a scientific fact. 
He really was being an av a activist trying to promote evolution rather than trying to just win the court case that was there. And he found out that even though the Scopes Monkey trial ruled against the defendant, society turned against the court. The community turned against the court. Because in their minds, they saw this as a Robin Hood situation, the underdog situation. This guy was being beat down by this oppressive group. Clarence Darrow won the war of public opinion, even without having the facts, even without winning the case. This is the idea that takes place in the world, and sometimes, unfortunately, in our own churches. If we allow the war of public opinion to be different than the facts, then we are going to be judging people in a way that God himself won't even judge them. Because we'll be convinced to think that evil people are good and good people are evil. This is exactly what Isaiah talked about. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil. That was the circumstances that the prophets were living in. They were living in a situation where people were saying that all these horrible things, that's actually good moral living. That's wonderful things to do. And that the word of God is evil, it's wicked. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? This is why it's important that we make sure that we look at the world through the lens of God's word. We look at the world the way God intends for us to, not the way that's easy. It's much easier to prejudge somebody. That's far easier. I don't have to get to know the person. I don't have to go through the awkwardness of those first conversations. I don't have to sit there and try to make that person feel welcome and comfortable. I don't have to do any of that. I just have to look across the room, see the person, what they're wearing, and how they look as a general rule, and now I have everything I feel like I need to know. Which is not at all the way God intended for us to be. Remember who Jesus taught and ate with and interacted with on a daily basis. Was it the people that were easy to get along with, that were the, the best of society? No, far from it. it. says he ate with sinners. He was around those who needed him. His exact phrase was, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. And friends, if we allow prejudice to be a part of our daily lives, we will not evangelize under any circumstances. Because we will grind ourselves into the ground trying to win the favor of people who genuinely don't want to hear you. That's what tends to happen. I had a friend of mine on one occasion who was talking about a congregation that he worked with, and he says that they tried what they called evangelism. And all they did was they kept hitting the same neighborhood over and over again because it was the safe, nice neighborhood. So they did all the time. They just kept hitting the same neighborhood over and over and over again, and people didn't want to hear. And he said, I kept trying to convince them that we can go to these other areas. We can try to work with them. And they said, oh, they don't want to listen. People just don't want to hear it anymore, and so they gave up. That is this in action. <laughs> That is what James is talking about in action, practically in front of our eyes. This is what divides congregations. This is what hinders evangelism. And this is what hinders growth as a Christian in individuals. Because if we use the same level of prejudice we use for other people with the Word of God, we are going to stop stone cold. 
James is dealing with this very harshly because it is a serious discussion. A very serious discussion. But let's look at verse 5. He says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Sounds like a pretty scathing critique of people, does it not? It's a pretty tough thing to hear. And he's telling them that God has chosen those who are poor of the world and rich in faith. You see, he's discussing there's a difference in being a wealthy person in God's eyes and being a wealthy person in man's eyes. A wealthy person in God's eyes probably doesn't have a cent to their name sometimes. It doesn't have to be the case that someone has to have a huge amount of money or a wonderful house or a great job and all of this. That's not the idea. The idea is he's looking for those who are faithful to him, those who are committed to him. Now, a person who's committed to him could be someone with the millions and millions of dollars. It could be someone with the no money to their name. It can go across a broad spectrum. But what he's talking about here specifically, he says, you are trying to win the approval of those who are enemies of Christ. He says, you are spending all this effort, all of this time, trying to win the favor of those who caused this problem in the first place. Because notice what he says. He says, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? He says, these are the ones who are dragging you out of hiding and putting you in front of these courts that are persecuting you. And these are the people you want to make happy? You want to make them the prominent people in your congregations? You see the inconsistency here? See the problem that arises? They were trying so hard to win the approval of those who genuinely wanted them destroyed. And friends, not much has changed in a few thousand years. We see churches all across this country that are trying to make everyone think they're good by the world standards. And what do they do? They compromise on doctrine. They compromise on the Word of God. They compromise on actual Christian living. They compromise on morals. They compromise on everything. Why? To make the very people that would love to shut their doors down happy. James is emphasizing again and again and again that our attitudes about things can be skewed, can be wrong. And James, one thing I appreciate about him, he never pulls any punches. He just tells you how it is. I described it to a friend of mine one time that reading the book of James is almost like getting advice from an older brother. They don't care how you feel about it. It's just what it is. And that's how James takes the approach. He is showing them, he's putting in a spotlight the hypocrisy and the stupidity of what they're doing. Because that is one of the best ways to get a hard heart to see what's wrong. One of the big issues that tends to pop up when it comes to evangelizing and talking to those who are in the world is that of pride. A proud heart is hard to reach. It is very hard to reach. 
And one of the few ways that you can actually see that wall break down is something that Jesus himself did repeatedly. When Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees and the publican, or the Pharisees and the scribes that would come to him, excuse me, what did he often do when they would ask him questions? He'd ask them a question. He would just ask them a question. They would come to him with a woman who was caught in adultery. They asked him what we should do, because here's what the law says to do. And what did Jesus say? You who are without sin cast the first stone. He knew that person was not there for justice. That wasn't the purpose of what was happening. They brought this woman to him in order to try to trap him in his own teachings. That was it. And Jesus knew their hearts, knew what they were trying to do, and he says, Okay, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. Jesus was one that was not going to be caught in traps. And friends, we walk into them a lot in Christianity. Oftentimes, discussions that seem to be... Well, it seems to be a champion moment. You know, someone's running their mouth, and you see that as an opportunity. Oh, I can jump in. Maybe I can stand for the truth. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's necessary that you need to stand in the gap. You need to stand up to those things that are wrong. But some of those conversations can be traps. Some of those conversations can be used against you, which is exactly what Solomon talked about in the book of Proverbs when he said, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be like him. But also to answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. We have to pick our battles carefully. See those moments that are necessary to deal with. Think to yourself, is this something that has to happen right now? Is this a moment that I can actually show the Word of God to others? Or is it just going to give him a bad name because it's going to be an open fight? We have to be very careful with these moments. But what he's dealing with these people... He says, these are the very people that blaspheme the name by which you are called. Blaspheme the name of God. Use it irreverently, who throw it aside, who make fun of it. This is the very attitude of the people that Jesus talked about when he talked about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The added, what it was the context of that situation? What had Jesus just witnessed in that context? What had Jesus just seen happen? The Pharisees were seeing what he had done, and they murmured among themselves, and they said, This man casteth out devils how? What did he, they say? By the power of Beelzebub. He cast out devils by the power of the devil. They were looking at the very work of God and calling it demonic. A heart that is willing to do that is not one who's willing to repent. Now, does that mean that those people could not have had a change of heart later on in life and become Christians? No. That doesn't mean that at all. But as long as they have that heart, there is no remission of sins for that person. There is no possible way that that person is going to become a Christian because they are looking at what is good and they're calling it evil. They are so diametrically opposed to God that they are willing to call out what He does as evil. That is the danger of this. And he's saying these are the very people that do this. They're blaspheming the name by which you are called. And then he follows this up. If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, 
thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, this next phrase really is, it's just the end all be all here. Ye commit sin. That's it. He says, friends, prejudice is sin. End of story. So when we hear people out in the world who like to say that the Bible is a prejudicial book, they throw whatever ist they want to throw at it that day, we can see a verse right here that completely proves that wrong. Now, they might like to bring up different historical situations out of context. They might like to bring up different ideas. I know one of their favorites that they like to bring up is how God deals with slavery and He has rules for how you should treat your slave in the Bible. And they say, well, see, God condones slavery. When in reality, what God was doing was putting a hedge around it. He's trying to smother it. Because it's very hard to want to own somebody that you have to treat well. It's pretty hard to try to enforce your will upon someone that you love and care about, is it not? See, God, from the very moment of creation, was trying to smother wickedness. To the very point that when His Son came, it was the death blow. Because now we can actually have forgiveness of sins. A perfect man sinned, a perfect man's blood was offered on the cross. Paid in full. This was their opportunity. But we live in a world that does not accept some of those things. They like to say that we are a prejudicial people. That we are a group that just wants this specific type of person with us. Friends, let's not let that be true. Let's not let that be true. Some of the worst critiques come from our enemies. (laughs) Because when they're right, it hurts worse than when a friend tells you. Because you have to accept it. If it's true, there has to be changes made. But throughout this country, even today, we like to divide into groups. We like to have this group over here that they're this kind of church and that's good for them and they're this kind of church and that's good for them. Friends, right is right and wrong is wrong. If we can't agree on doctrine, there's a problem. There's a problem. This is what he is encouraging from the get-go for these people. This is the first century church. This is not long after the sermon on the day of Pentecost. And they're already having to deal with it. They're already having to deal with prejudice. They're already having to deal with lying. They're already having to deal with temptations. And it hasn't changed. The same that was true for them is the same that's true for us today. He says, but if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Convinced of the law as transgressors. There are several different historical teachings that are interesting with regard to this point. Some like to hold to the modern-day ideologies and think that they're the most accepting, they're the most welcoming. 
But if you go back just a little bit in history, you can find some very scathing critiques on some of the things that people teach. One that I found actually came from Charles Darwin. Now, I'm sure many of us are familiar with that name. If not, probably it was because we slept through science class. But Charles Darwin was the father of what? Father of the theory of evolution. The man who started everything that we see today that in our academia. This is what he said. At some future point, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace throughout the world the savage races. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes, as Professor Schaffenhausen has remarked, will no doubt be exterminated. The break will then be rendered wider, for it will intervene between man and a more civilized state, as we may hope, than the, Cauca or than the Caucasian and some, uh, some ape as low as a baboon, instead of, as at present, between the Negro of Australian and gorilla. Did y'all catch what he just said? Did y'all catch that? <laughs> This was the very same teaching that the Nazis used. This was the very same teachings that we see even today where we like to say some groups are better or worse than others. That's what the world has to offer. That's the only thing it can offer. Because God is the one that says you are all made in my image. God is the one that says we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if you remove that, that's what you have left. That's what we have left. The teachings of sadistic men. That's it. We are not to be allowing ourselves to be included in all of this. To allow these things to be the forefront of our minds. We are to be better than that because God is better than that. He wants to call us out of this world to call us into a better life. Any questions or comments about that section before we move on? Anything at all? All right. Absolutely. It's, it really is a form of selfishness that people engage in when they like to give credence or prominence to wealthy men instead of anyone else. Because it really becomes a matter of what can I get out of it. I put you in a place of prominence so maybe you'll remember me. Maybe you'll keep me in mind. If you, go, you can even go back and look at some of the most heinous empires in history and watch who put those people in power. It was the ones who thought they could get something out of it. Someone who thought, oh, I'm going to get a lot of power, a lot of prestige if this all goes through. What was the selling point of the Russian Revolution in 1917? The thing that produced the Soviet Union, the Red Scare, the big communist nation that was the haunt of the world for several years. What was their main premise? Everyone who didn't have anything will now have a lot. What was their audience again? Who were these people they were talking to? Serfs. 
People who did not have a thing. See, before the Soviet Union came into power, the Russians were under the Tsar. And they didn't get out of this medieval mindset of feudalism until after World War I. <laughs> These people had nothing. And then World War I made sure they had even less than nothing. And then this guy comes in and says, hey, you know those people who are living comfortably while you're in pain right now? While you're suffering? See, we're going to take from them. We're going to take all that away from them and we're going to give it to you and you'll be on an equal playing field with them. What they neglected to say is, yes, you're going to be equal with them. You're both going to be dirt farmers in Ukraine. That's what you're going to be. <laughs> but those people were motivated not by good things. Some of them, no doubt, just wanted to do what was good for their family. I just want some stuff for my family. Maybe this will give me an opportunity to do so. But most of the leaders of that movement were not out to, for any altruistic reasons. They weren't out to help people. So when we allow ourselves to fall into the same traps, we are separating from what God has said and what the world has said. What does God say when there's people who are suffering and in pain? What does He tell a Christian to do? Talk, do what? Go help them. That's Acts chapter 2, right? The end of Acts chapter 2, it says they had all things in common and they gave to people such as they had need. Sounds a whole lot simpler than having to go through a whole bunch of different programs and situations and go through the paperwork from this guy and then get transferred to the paperwork of this guy and then maybe after a week of waiting for that phone call back, then you can get something. See, Christians are active people. We see a need, we meet the need. See, this was one of the things that has driven empires crazy when it comes to Christians. Christianity doesn't need them. <laughs> We're not anarchists. We don't push for the removal of government. But in reality, do we not have a government? Do we not have a law? Do we not have ways of meeting our needs? It drives them crazy. That's the beauty of what God created. That's the beauty of this group that He put on this earth for the purpose of saving souls. And so in this situation, He's trying to set them apart. He's trying to say, you are Christians, you are separated from this. You are not supposed to be engaging in these things. You are supposed to be the people that see the needs of others and you meet them. You are the people who don't see the outward appearance. You see the heart, you see the soul. Because that's what Jesus did. And if we're trying to follow after Him, then that's what we're going to do. We're going to do the very same thing. So if someone could read verses 10 through 13, please. All right, so taking this point, does someone have to violate every single law in order to be called a criminal? How many laws does someone have to violate to be a criminal? Just one. If I break into someone's house, I am a criminal. I violated the law, I'm a criminal. That's it. That's all there is to it. 
What he's talking about here, he's taking this point of what we had just discussed, and what did he say at the end, or, or around verse 9 it was? How did he describe it? He says, but if you respect, or actually let's start in verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the what? Law. Conviction of the law as transgressors. And then that leads us into verse 10. For, for conjunction, joining two thoughts, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. He just told them to fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Anything that violates that causes you to be in sin and violation of the law. And so he says, for he said, here's his example. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. How insane would it have to be? And we're not going to talk about how close some places are to this. But how crazy would it be for someone to go into court, and this is their defense. They stand before the judge, and the lawyer stands up and he says, Your Honor, I just want you to know about this. Yes, my client is accused of you know, hitting 17 people with his bicycle on the side of the road, and we know that this is what he did, but at least he's not a murderer. Yeah, that's a case that's going to stand up in court, right? The at least he's not, right? He's better than he could be. That doesn't hold up. The judge still says he hit 17 people with a bicycle. He still violated the law. He assaulted people. There are people who like to use this with Christianity, however. They like to say, okay, yes, I might, you know, drink a little bit, but, but, at least I don't kill someone. And they expect to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, well, at least I wasn't this, and God is going to say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You know how I know that? parable of the Pharisee and the publican, where they both were praying. And the Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. And he lists off all the wonderful things he does. And at the end of it, he says, even like this publican. God, at least I'm better than him. And what did the publican say? It says he beat on his chest was looking down at the ground, couldn't even raise his eyes up into heaven and says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then what does Jesus say about that? Whose prayer do you think he heard? Whose prayer do you think God looked at and said that was good? Friends, for us to try to tell God what he should expect of us is the utmost level of pride. To look at God and say, what you said is not fair. Or what you said is too harsh. That is the utmost level of pride. And we talked about in the book of Proverbs, that's one of the seven things he hates, is a proud look. Now what people like to say is that if you ever tell me I'm wrong, then you are being proud. 
but the reality is it's pride showing its head. Because for me, to refuse to accept any changes, to refuse any feedback because it doesn't make me feel good, that's pride. You hurt my pride. He's dealing with here an understanding of the law and understanding how this works. He says, yes, if you offend in one point, you are guilty of all. Now, here's the real kicker to it. Here's the thing we all need to pay attention to. Are we referring to if I violate it once and try to make it right, or just because I commit the sin, does that make me lost? Really depends on what I do with it, right? I can commit one sin and it can condemn me to hell for all eternity. I can also commit one sin and still go to heaven. How can that happen? What was it? Repentance. Asking for forgiveness. What's the verse we use at the end of so many sermons? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What reference is that? 1 John chapter what? 1 9. 1 9. Very close. 1 9. 1 John 1 9. If there's a verse that you really need to have in your back pocket, that's it. That's it. Memorize it, study it, look at it over and over again because that is a verse that so many people are hung up on. We are not to be people who are constantly terrified of making one wrong move. But we're also not to be a people who don't take it seriously when we do. We're not scared every day feeling like we've got to walk through a landmine field in order to get through life. But we're also people that don't look at a landmine and say, oh, it's all going to be okay. I can step on this. It's probably fine. To be extreme one side or the other is to still be extreme. And James is trying to encourage these people to keep this in mind. He says, you are to love one another. Oh, go ahead. All right. So, continue to willfully sin and there is no more remission of sin. So, the willful part of that is the important part. You're going to sin. First John 1 says, if you close the sin, you cleanse the sin. So, the willful part is the important part. Absolutely. Absolutely. For those who couldn't hear... He was, or was saying earlier that it's the willful part that's important. If I have immediately committed a sin, but then continue in it, willingly, knowing I've done wrong, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. That's it. It's done. It's over. But if I see that the sin has been committed, I know that it's wrong, I see that in God's Word, and I repent of that, I move away from that, the blood of Jesus Christ's Son cleanseth us from all sin. It's that simple. It sounds so crazy to people, though. But it really is that simple. I've had some people talk to me and say that they might not be able to be forgiven that if you sin willfully. But they just didn't realize the concept of <coughs> stepping away from that and say, I've done wrong and I've repented of that. Yep, absolutely. We like, we like for things to be a one-stop shop one way or the other. We love the idea of I'm baptized into Christ, I'm a Christian, so I'm never going to fall. 
And we also like the idea of if I sin once, I'm lost for all eternity. <laughs> because for us, it seems to simplify it. But the reality is it's not really simplifying it. It's actually making it far more complicated than it needs to be. The reality is, if I'm walking in the light, which means what? When I sin, I make it right. I continue to study after God's Word. I'm keeping that as the forefront in my mind. Everything I'm trying to do is for the good of God. Then I'm in the light as He is in the light, and we have fellowship one with another. So, that is where we're going to have to stop. We're out of time. We'll pick up there next week. Thank you all for your comments and questions.